Hey everyone, this is Joey and we're back with another episode of the Backdrop Podcast, a show focused on helping builders figure out how to bring new things to life in frontier tech. This conversation was recorded as part of 100 Builders, a four-week program to support people building open tech at early stages in crypto and AI. And today we talked about building a business in open tech, a topic that in the past might have been somewhat counterintuitive. Open source started in many ways as counter-capitalism, but more and more big businesses are being built on open foundations. My guests today are Joseph Jacks, the founder of OSS Capital, one of the very few venture firms focused exclusively on open tech, Peer Richardson, the founder of Cal.com, essentially an open source version of Calendly, and Sasha Moshtahedi, the founder of Parallel, a trading card game with its own eternal economy built on Ethereum. Uh, both Parallel and Cal.com have seen you know, rocket ship success over the past year, and uh, they're both portfolio companies of OSS Capital. What really struck out to me in this conversation is that despite how quickly open tech is becoming big business, the mental models for builders to think about it still haven't been defined. Questions like what to open versus what to keep closed, how to leverage the community and co-creation, and how to outcompete closed alternatives pound for pound on product. Joseph, Payer, and Sasha all had great thoughts on those, but what's clear is that there's a real opportunity for people who can think systematically through building businesses in open tech. Hope you enjoy. Super happy to have three amazing builders here with us today. We have Pierre from founder of Cal.com, Sasha, one of the founders of Parallel, and, and JJ, uh, founder of, of OSS Capital. And how you got into this uh, this world of, of building you know, on open stuff. So maybe Pierre, I'll, I'll kick it over to you for first. Yeah, well, um, funny enough, I my career started in open source when I was like very, very young. I think WordPress 2 or so came out, like two or three. Um, and I was just doing some plugins and themes for WordPress. Uh, I was probably like 16 or so, 15. I don't remember. I have to double check. But um, And then I took a big detour uh, to just build private source startups for the last 10 years. Um, I did um, one startup was a marketplace to buy and sell magic cards. So that's kind of interesting with Sasha from Parallel here. Um, so I love trading card games. Um, and uh, that one got into Y Combinator around three, four years, four years ago. Jeez, time flies. Um, so did YC, uh, spent a lot of time in the Bay Area and then came back to Germany uh, and Europe. Um, and just recently started Cal.com. It's an open source uh, scheduling infrastructure product. Uh, we have both consumer facing like products that just Cal.com slash username for your own personal link. But then we also have like very embedded infrastructure um, services for like anywhere from enterprise, healthcare, governments, you name it, that need like mass scheduling. So um, yeah, that's kind of like the last ten years, just been build, busy building. <laughs> Every day I'm trying to build something new, so um, that keeps me excited. Amazing, yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, maybe JJ, I'll, I'll popcorn it to you. Sure. My name is Joseph Jacks. Uh, people call me JJ. I started a fund called OSS Capital uh, five years ago next month and uh, super lucky to have um, invested in uh, Pierre's company and Sasha's company. And we invest in open source startups uh, exclusively. So we're kind of weird. We're the only fund that, that does that. And um, the five or six years prior to OSS Capital, um, I started a couple of open source companies both of them kind of died. The first one sort of had like an acquire outcome. Um, I learned a lot about open source 
business models and licensing and community building and stuff like that, um, mostly through this project called Kubernetes, um, which is like a DevOps infrastructure um, uh, uh, project that lets you run Docker containers and uh, sort of DevOps uh, uh, systems on a bunch of computers. And, uh, you know, infrastructure people use it pretty regularly now. Um, I was very lucky to, to start the first company in that community and uh, the community conference. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of uh, known for being really unhealthily probably obsessed with open source companies, uh, tweeting about them all the time, talking about them, drawing weird metaphors. Um, uh, and um, yeah. That's basically me. Yeah, well, I'm a very happy consumer consumer of your weird metaphors and, and tweets. So, so thank you, um, Sasha. Let me talk about Parallel. Uh, yeah, so uh, my name's Sasha. I'm one of the co-founders of Parallel. Uh, Parallel is a trading card game that's built on blockchain infrastructure. Um, obviously, like you know, you think about Magic or Hearthstone, and uh, in the non-physical forms, you know, one of the big problems is that you know they're not really trading card games because the trading is not really possible anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, we built this, you know, game that's in beta called Parallel, where you're able to own your cards, own your cosmetic assets, um, you know, built on this kind of open architecture. Uh, and yeah, we're in closed beta right now. So if you want to check out Parallel.life to uh, see what it's all about, you're welcome to. But uh, prior to that, uh, got involved in particularly in the blockchain space pretty early on. Um, you know, uh, around Ethereum, you know, and a couple other networks uh, that, you know, I was fortunate enough to participate, you know, in building different applications and um, kind of experimenting with, and it all kind of culminated into, uh, you know, stuff that we now do and deliver for the, the trading card game to be uniquely functional on this open and distributed network. Yeah, very cool. In parallel, it's, yeah, I think it's been Looks like it's been going like gangbusters. Uh, you know, it has. I was fortunate enough to, you know, jump into the to the beta. It's super cool. Yeah. So congrats on. I mean, both Cal.com and and Parallel. I think have been just real success stories. So we're very very lucky to have you. I, I think maybe one of my first questions. It's maybe a good one for for you, JJ. Is like I think if you if you kind of look from afar, it might seem that you know Parallel and Cal.com are are like pretty different kinds of you know businesses companies, right? So I, I think what we mean by by open tech. It seems like it's it can be kind of broad. So I guess how do you think about like what what makes like an open tech company like what's a, I guess it's also a question of like what's a good fit for an OSS capital. Two answers to that. I'll give the more technical answer, and then I'll tell you how and why we invested in Parallel, which is Great. a slightly different answer. <laughs> um, so OSS Capital. The thesis is basically, you know, we, we think open source technologies um, are sort of the future of all, you know, digital innovation and maybe even physical innovation. And so the, 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 the way we look at investing is um, we sort of split the world into two types of companies, companies that have a, a closed core on one hand, and then on the other hand, companies that have an open core, uh, you know, on the other hand. And that's kind of like 50,000 foot view. So kind of going a little deeper, um, what does core mean? So like companies that have like a, a product or a service, there's typically some like runtime or engine or sort of like essence or nucleus or whatever metaphor you want to use that sort of drives everything. That's like the, the heart and soul of the business, basically. And, you know, most companies in the, in the technology industry, the software industry, consumer internet, all kinds of things, they, they basically have this black box. It's like a proprietary system of some kind. And then everything else like builds on top of that. So for like Google, it's their 
um, you know, their, their indexing and all of their ranking logic. You know, for Microsoft, it's like the, the proprietary source code behind Windows and Office and all these things. And, um, you know, maybe for Uber, it's their, you know, data uh, uh, distribution network for kind of connecting and routing messages between the drivers and the, and the, and the, and the, and the riders and, and all this kind of stuff. So, um, but open source businesses, they have some open source technology that anyone can use, that anyone can see at the heart of the business. And then everything sort of builds from there. And so it's sort of like the inverse of the conventional way of building a company. Instead of like a black box being at the center, you, you still have some proprietary aspects, but they're sort of pushed to the edges. They're pushed kind of like to the periphery or the, you know, the metaphor would be like the crust or the frosting or the wrapping, right? But the core is, is very permissive. It's open source. And so that's OSS Capital's thesis. We've invested in a bunch of companies. Um, most of them, I'd say 90 plus percent of them look like Cal.com, uh, 95% maybe. So there's like an open source project on GitHub. Um, and, you know, there's a community around that. And you sort of have like, in some cases, maybe like proprietary alternatives that you can point to. Like, so for Cal.com, there's like Calendly. You know, for things like MongoDB, there's like Oracle. Um, you know, some, some projects like explicitly say like, we're the open source version of X. Others are, are just sort of very clearly just better tools and projects and developers just default to them. Um, so I'll tell you the story about Parallel now, which is like maps to that and is, is sort of technically in thesis for us. But um, we just got crazy lucky with Parallel. I, I, I don't know how, it was. there's no other way to say it. So one of my investors uh, is this guy, Chad Hurley. He's the co-founder of YouTube. Um, he's also an investor in, 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 in Paris Company. And uh, I got to know Chad early on uh, in building the, the fund and was hanging out with him. And he would only talk about Parallel. Like literally he was just like, he was like drunk on Parallel. He was like, there's this thing and it's like, you know, it's the future and it's like a sci-fi game. And it's, you know, it's like humanity is like at war with other humanities. And, and I was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? This sounds like some kind of, because Chad's like, he's controversial and he's, he's got a lot of, you know, interesting characteristics, but he's a brilliant person. He's very, 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 uh, you know, innovative. So I was like, what, what is up with this thing? So I basically decided to go down this rabbit hole and correct me if I'm wrong, Sasha, but I, I, you know, went on Twitter and was like, okay, there's, okay, there's the parallel account. I'm just going to like DM this thing and see what happens. Um, so parallel was really very, almost accidental and like kind of strange how it happened. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, sort of midway through raising our first fund and uh, we just got insane luck and luck, luck is the only way I kind of describe it. But if I go back to the, the description initially of like what constitutes an open source company, I mean, Parallel's open core is this you know, open source project called Ethereum. And, you know, it's on GitHub. It was created by Vitalik Buterin. It's, 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 a, it's a very vibrant and amazing open source community, uh, you know, concretely open source as a technology. Um, but th th that's kind of where the, the differences sort of begin and end. You have this whole universe of Web3 and crypto, and there's this entire like sort of lexicon and kind of movement that is, is very kind of concretely distinct from sort of conventional B2B software companies, enterprise software companies, consumer internet companies, that um, I think Parallel is, is, is certainly in that category. But I think Parallel is also sort of transcending that because they're building something that is hard to really put your finger on. Is it a gaming company? Is it um, a software company? Is it a networking system of some kind? Is it a marketplace? You know, it's kind of all those things. It's like a fractal of a lot of, uh, 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 you know, touches on a lot of interesting um, ways of, of building a company. Yeah. 
No, that's that's really useful. I mean, at Maps too. I think we we have you know tons of projects of all different you know shapes and sizes apply, and a lot of them kind of in that form of more like the parallel, where it's like you're building something on top of an open you know ecosystem, but maybe you yourself are not you know building like a big open source project and. I think, you know, we're still trying to figure out like, you know, how does, where are the similarities, where are the differences, how do we support builders that are, you know, doing kind of different things. And so I'm, I guess I'm curious, Sasha, on, on that note, maybe like, you know, you've built a lot of stuff in your, in your career, a lot of different things. Does it feel different now? Like, you know, J, you know, JJ's mentioning like building on top of like an open ecosystem, like Ethereum, yeah. does it feel noticeably different than let's say building something more traditional, so to speak, like in, in, you know, in a past you know, what you've done previously. For sure. Yeah, it does. For sure. Um, like, I mean, you're still writing code, you're still shipping quality products. Um, but the difference is that there's like on a regular basis, someone, you know, someone builds a tool around what you've built and someone builds, you know, an iteration or a variant on what you've built and deploys it. And so you're getting to see like real time iterative. And this has happened like many, many times now. Um, there's like, I think there's probably over like 40 or Probably in the ballpark of somewhere on the conservative side, 30 on the, you know, optimi- you know maybe more generous side, 50 different, um, you know, tools that people have built off of what Parallel has deployed. Um, and so, and like a lot of times we're like, oh, that's really good. Like sometimes when something's really that good, we just integrate it into our product and reach out to that person and say, hey, like, let's, is it cool if we use this? Um and so it is different in that on a regular basis, you have people iterating on stuff you built. And then, and, and as that happens, um, you know, uh, what we're finding more and more is like our appetite for that's increasing. And so, you know, uh, you know, how do we open up game data? And so in, instead of us trying to, you know, go, instead of us trying to create the, the you know, smart contracts and um, interaction points with game data, be it win-loss ratios or other things, like how do we just open that up and, and empower other people to, to, to build on that data set? Um, and so I think it is different in that, you know, in the previous in previous consumer mobile startups that have worked on and built, um, you're kind of like very, oh, very much a, a walled garden and like putting soldiers on the top of the wall to protect everything. And anytime something pops up, you almost want to like whack a mole. Um, which doesn't make a lot of sense because when you actually, you know, somewhat counterintuitively to the maybe traditional startup, once you actually do open it up and people enjoy the product, care about the IP in our particular case, and, you know, build their own versions of products, you start to see how people who don't think like the folks who work in the studio uh, think about organizing a product. And, and, and it's a lot of times it's a breath of fresh air. A lot of times you're like, oh, wow, like, this is a totally different take on, you know, solving the same problem. And we probably should have thought about it this way as well. But, and then we just try to integrate it. Like we, we reach out to the community member who created it and say like, this is really cool. Like, can we add this to parallel.life and can we, you know, to our, to our core site and that way more people can use it. And they're obviously happy. They're like, yeah, that's great. This is like what I wanted. I wanted to, to make something that was useful for people and solve yeah. the problem for themselves. Yeah. That's super interesting. I mean, we had, um, Jesse Pollock on this uh, talk last week, and he was talking about, you know, kind of like the new open compute uh, on, you know, these blockchains. And I think it just feels like a, a slightly different way to think about building. And, and maybe I'm yeah, curious, Pierre, also in your experience, I, maybe for everyone, all of you, it's like, should builders be thinking about building differently? Because there are all these, you know, who are, if you're creating something open, right, you have all these emergent possibilities. So it's a is it, you know, does it change how you need to think about 
you know, creating capabilities for your product? Is it a little bit more like, well, let's just see how people use this? Or is it the kind of same old bread and butter of go out there, you know, do the user research, find the problem, build the capability that, you know, solves that problem? Like, I guess, has it changed how you approach just kind of the day-to-day of building? I I see a lot of pitches, uh, startup pitches um, from other founders, and I'm like, why is this not open source? Like, almost um, when you have this kind of like, once you're in a bubble, every, <laughs> what is the saying? Uh, uh, I, for, I forgot this one, but like, if you, let's say you buy a Tesla, suddenly you see Tesla's everywhere, right? Um, just this change of perception. Um, I'm most of like the same gut reaction that people have like, oh, I'm afraid to open source my software whatsoever. I have kind of like the opposite um, opinion nowadays of like, why is this not open source? Like you would be so much faster, further with more contributions, more feedback, uh, faster feedback loop and better go to market, especially when selling to something like developers or people who want to build in your ecosystem, right? Um, And in fact, I've actually advised another startup to open source their code base and they've been flatlining for a long time. And now there's some early signs of traction. And it's like, you know, you start to see these patterns where you're almost shooting yourself in the foot if you're not open source, uh, especially when selling to developers. And I find that very interesting because it's kind of like the 360, not 180 degrees uh, opposite perspective than Traditionally, some people were saying, like, if you open source your product, you're you're doomed to fail somewhat. So, so that's something I've definitely seen more and more. And I'm actually also advising people to go down that road to explore. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's been an awesome journey, especially when you consider also that a lot of open source is being sold to enterprise or governments or healthcare. It's a huge selling point. It's a huge selling point just to say something like, well, if our shitty startup, which likely happens goes out of business you can still use our software like nobody gives a shit about like automatic running wordpress or we've just recently seen uh, rome tools unfortunately shut down and there's a a new fork you know that the tech lives on um so for those companies for those customers uh, we see this every day in our sales that they really appreciate us being open source and they would not buy a cal.com that would be closed source right so it's, it's a huge difference yeah I mean, that was one of the questions I wanted to to ask is I, it makes total sense. And I I guess one thing that I've noticed even talking to people is, I mean, cow.com, you know, parallel, these are big businesses, right? And there's tons, there's tons more examples. If you go through the OSS, you know, portfolio companies, you see a lot of great businesses. And so I think they're, (laughs) yeah, shout out to you, JJ, but, um, all the founders, I'm just, I'm just the guy that was lucky to intercept. (laughs) Totally. I think for for like you know more you know, let's say like traditional business models for software like you know SaaS we have like freemium and free trial and all these kinds of things and and there's a lot of you know like accepted wisdom about those things like what you should make free what you should charge for you know what's your value metric like all these kinds of stuff that so you can read tens of blog posts about that it feels less clear to me in talking to people like what the mental models are for that so maybe we have this mental model for cow.com which is like Hey, there's a you know free simple version that you could you know use, but it's also like we're going to go and sell to governments, or we're like any like highly regulated industry is going to need to buy an enterprise account. Those are your huge contracts or whatever. Um, I, I mean, I'm probably oversimplifying the cattle.com business model, but just in, in yeah, general, like what are yeah. I don't know. Do, do you have ways of thinking about like 
what should be free, what should be open, because it feels like it's one of those maybe like counterintuitive things where you could actually probably open up a lot more than you assume. And like that what you leave is is still like really valuable as a business. But I'm just, you know, how do you how do you like, you know, guide other people, other builders that you come across and how to think about that? Yeah. So JJ and I actually had this fun road trip from Denmark to Germany. Well, other way around from Germany to Denmark. And we we were like, there has to be a better playbook almost like how to, because we, you've mentioned all the SaaS playbooks of like, here's your SaaS benchmarks, here's your onboarding, here's your freemium, premium kind of like handbook. Like those stories have been written by virtually every SaaS company in the past. Uh, it's it's very much adoptable. For costs, commercial open source, it's very different because as you mentioned, the business model is also very different. Um, like if you say freemium, it is literally free. Like the thing is free. You can take it, you can change it, you can run it yourself. Um, so the the value capture mechanism is very different. So me and JJ were in this car and we were like, how can we like really write this down into a more productized handbook and and really help startups and, and new founders? Maybe it's not even a startup, but just like open source contributors and maintainers to build a, a much better product and business at the end of the day because the business feeds back to the repository usually. Um, and we called it a, a Git round, right? So um, you don't raise a pre-seed round, you raise a Git round because it's a very, very different different industry. It's, it's all, the, all the mental models are different, um, pretty much all of them. And so um, what we've come, come across is this idea of like AppFra is one of the new concepts that we're trying to popularize where you have a free free app and then you have the sold infrastructure. That's kind of like what Calicom is doing. So the app part is the Calicom account that is free. You can anyone can sign up, but then the infra is where you you monetize the product and where it's really sticky. It's more developer focused. Like the average user doesn't care about open source. They don't care about like developer friendliness. They just want to have a good product, right? Good app. And then the infra is all the learnings that you've learned from the app. You're applying to your infrastructure and you're reselling infrastructure to whatever business needs scheduling. Um, and you can make this example for Documenzo, another great portfolio company of JJ that probably has a very good consumer facing app at the end of the day and then sells the infrastructure of signing documents or signing objects um, to enterprise and healthcare and all these freaking uh, markets that are out there that need uh, proper infrastructure. Um, and so I think there is a really cool playbook to write. Now, it's, it doesn't, it won't work for every commercial open source business, of course, right? But um, I think those we're still in the very very early days. We're almost in a like an open source renaissance, and it's it's really cool to be like on day zero and being really pushing pushing the the environment forward. I'll add a couple things to your question. And the car ride to Denmark was last week, so this is very much materializing as we speak. In fact, it's unfolding during this meeting. Um, I have a more philosophical answer to this. I think eventually everything is open source, like over time, like 50, 100 years from now. And the only defensible business model is basically your pace of improvement and your pace of innovation. I mean, Elon literally just like explicitly says this these days. He's like, doesn't matter. You know, patents are for losers. We're going to give away all of our patents. You know, uh, we're going to open up our charging station networks to other car manufacturers I don't know exactly yet if they're going to open source the or open up the, the autopilot <laughs> software. They're probably going to license that. But the point is, like, over time, I don't think, like, defensibility at the level of what you built um, matters. I think it's 
the fact that you're continually releasing awesome stuff. And your consumer and your customer is going to care and notice that a lot more than the single snapshot of what you did yesterday or what you did last week, right? And so, um, you know, HashiCorp just released this new license model called the BSL, the business source license. It's not open source. It effectively puts a time box on when all their code goes back to open source for, for their core projects. And I think they could apply the same rubric to their, you know, commercial bits and the, the proprietary things they're not releasing because customers are just not going to care, right? Like you're paying money for something that eventually gets open sourced two or three years from now. Um, that kind of doesn't matter. You're going to continue paying for the, the product or the service um, because it's solving a business problem for you now. And only that company can build that, you know, technology for you. So I, I think that's probably too philosophical and too confusing for most founders to be practical. So that's why I would revert back to like what, what Pear was saying around, like we need playbooks and handbooks and models for people to really incrementally understand how to actually embrace this because it's extremely counterintuitive. The, the reality is, is very hard to like grasp this stuff as an entrepreneur when you're confronted with like runway and you're going to run out of money and you have to raise investor capital and you have people that need to be paid and like, you don't want to go bankrupt. You're like, shit, like I have to sell something. <laughs> what am I going to sell? Um, everything I build is just going to be proprietary. And I'm going to put a paywall on it and try to charge people money. Like that's the easiest thing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And that that is the easiest like mental approach. When you take the approach of building with, you know, Git workflow and you're like writing code in the open and there's this like project on GitHub, it's completely different. Like pretty much everything is completely different. Um, Pear met his founder through the open source project. GitLab met his founder through the open source project. There's endless, endless examples of this. Matt Molno. Matt. We hire every person almost in the core team was a contributor before. Like it's it's crazy how how different. Uh, Pear was kind of touching at this. How different almost everything is. Hiring, iterating, business models, go to market, even fundraising. I think you have to kind of question a lot of the fundamentals, like how capital efficient can you be. You know, but to talk, Buterin didn't raise any money for Ethereum. I mean, maybe that's somewhat, you know, questionable, but um, uh, there's this sort of the, 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 the initial, um, you know, pre-sale for, for, the, for the token and stuff. But like, I'm not sure that went into engineering. I think it was just like very clear what the technology was going to be. And then there was a big community that formed around it. So yeah, my, my view is that over time, everything is open source in the digital business world and um, tools world. And then the way capitalism will work is essentially you have companies built around um, trust and they ship at a rate that other companies cannot match. And the rate of shipping better and better improved versions of that product will cause companies and customers to subscribe uh, with some kind of you know, uh, payment. Uh, could be crypto, could be dollars um, for that product. And basically, so you're, and so as your rate of innovation goes down, your rate of defensibility and creating a valuable business uh, also uh, goes down. So they're directly correlated. As your rate of innovation goes up and it's sustained and compounds over time, that 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 follows your rate of um, that follows your rate of uh, value value capture and value creation. So, like, I'll say one last thing. This is kind of rambling. Today, I think the value creation value capture like differentials are completely disconnected from reality. Um, economics has this term of value capture, which is like markets and revenue and dollars. And value creation is this kind of like fuzzy thing, like Google search, like 
how much value does a Google search response give a user? It's free. It's a free service. Is that reflected in GDP? The answer is no. Google indirectly monetizes that through ads. And so value creation is this kind of fuzzy thing. I think in the future, if all the in infrastructure and technology world were, were open source, you'd have a direct correlation between value creation and value capture. Um, and a good example of this is in finance with hedge funds. I think Nat, Nat Friedman was just saying this yesterday on, on Twitter. I saw this snippet. He was like, if you did uh, a survey of all the top 10 hedge fund managers in the world, and you said for your top analysts, if they did a, a monthly Zoom, um, doing a look back of their top trading strategies, um, just 10 minutes a month, right? At the end of the year, how much of that would um, cause uh, reduction in profits? And Nat actually did the survey. and It was like an 80% 80 reduction in the profits, okay? Uh, and then Nat said, okay, at what time window interval would you need to change um, in order for the profits to not be that affected? And the hedge fund manager said 10 years, <laughs> right? And so there's like so few secrets in the world that actually are, are the fundamental basis for how companies generate profits and capture value. If there's all these asymmetries and the world is like super inefficient as a result of those asymmetries. And open source basically makes, makes information asymmetry go away because there is no more information asymmetry. It's all, it's all symmetrical. Everyone can see the same information. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it, but that, that's like a very technical way of describing like the, the vision behind a lot of this stuff. I think founders today, they need a much more pragmatic, like accessible path for going and saying, like, oh, it's just going to build this, you know, flask app that's proprietary and put a paywall. Like now I'm doing open source. I don't even know how open source works. You know, how do I do licensing? How do I do, you know, you know, governance? How do I, you know, accept a pull request? How do I respond to an issue? Like a lot of these things are, are still pretty, um, confusing for people. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll, I think that's relevant to, I'm going to start pulling some questions in where they seem relevant, but even this one, which is the one that I was going to ask, which is like, at least when I talk to people, I think what you're mentioning in terms of like, Hey, I have this thing I'm building. I want to, you know, charge for it. So therefore I should, you know, make as much of, as possible of it, you know, like proprietary makes sense. But honestly, I I've seen even maybe more. So people are worried about losing control and they're worried about losing speed because, you know, if you're building something in the open, like if you feel like it needs to be more polished. So it's like, oh, I'm not going to put this. I, I, you know, I think this is kind of the question is like showing the way. It's partially like, you know, can I build an end to end solution that, you know, really is is great. And then maybe, yeah, maybe I'll open it up after after the fact. So like, you know, and, and I'm I'm curious, like, how, how do you think about that? Even like Sasha, what you're mentioning is like you're designing a game, right? And it's in some ways controlling that experience. I mean, so much work goes into that. I think maybe it just comes down to um, where, what components of what you're building are open and what components of what you're building are like kind of where your your contributions are are the leading factor of, of value creation. Um, so and like Parallel fully intends on doing that same thing. We've been building this 3D asset repository as we've been building, making our, our 2D cards. Um, so we have hundreds of these pieces of assets that include, you know, vehicles, weapons, characters, landscapes, all the core components of creating a game in UE5. And what happens when you unleash, you know, the power of everyone who's super passionate about this game in its current form and say, hey, by the way, you can now make it in a way more immersive for, uh, form and there's no rules. And the only thing you need to, to, to have that governs your, your, your creativity is really this matrix of values that says 
this gun deals this much damage, this armor gives you this much benefit, and like just unleash the, the pop, you know, the the general public to create a way better game than we probably could ever create. And you just got to be honest with yourself about that as like a game developers or as a game studio is like it's often the case that you make your version of the game and everyone else makes it better. <laughs> Reminds me of all the modding community in like GTA and stuff. Yeah. I think I think the, the majority of most interesting magic cards that I remember were actually inspired by community members of the magic uh, community. And I think the most popular uh, like game format of magic is Commander, which was also like an introduction created. from the community. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but going back to your question, um, Math, uh, I hope you're still around. Um, when building open source, would it be a good strategy to show the way before opening up? Um, I don't think so. I think some of the best projects that I've been following, and also including Cal, were open source from the very first day. And uh, we actually <laughs> we actually had just a landing page outlining, yes, it's open source, but like nothing's been written yet. <laughs> it's just an idea, project stage, go sign up for the waitlist and, and like check it out. And uh, that was enough for people to sign up for a waitlist. Like, if you have a great idea, if you have a good um, roadmap and a good vision of where you want, you know, good products to, to look like in the future, that's totally fine. Like, um, and also, <clears throat> the if you look back on <laughs> the history, some history lessons, like we launched 0.1 on Product Hunt, and it got like product the day of the week of the month, almost of the year. And it was crazy shit. It was so bad. Like it, it basically only connected to Google. There was no app store concept. Like everything was hard coded. Um, I, I remember the, the calendar interface, you know, the core piece of our product had like, it would start on the first and it would end at the 31st, like the layout, you know, and you, you all know that calendar layout changes according to Monday, Tuesday, et cetera. So it was really bad. It was just really, really bad. And the code was bad. Like me and my co-founder just, Basically, shit it out and see what happens. Um, and and open source makes you write good code. Like it's the other way around. The more shitty your code is, the more people want to help you and contribute. Like the best way to get an answer on Stack Overflow is to reply with a shitty answer to your own posts because people will correct you. <laughs> like it's so funny. And um, and so yeah, we've had tons of contributions to just would refactor some shitty ass code, and that's perfectly fine. So. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Nobody cares about the quality of your project, uh, especially in the early days. Later, of course, you know, you want to be stable and, and, and have good practices in place. But in the beginning, it just it's really about like what type of problem you're solving. And so, um, yeah, that's if you can get that done with shitty code, go for it, go write shitty code. Like, don't be afraid to show what, you, what you've built. Yeah, I would double down on that and say, um, so Reid Hoffman, who I don't agree with on a lot of things these days, unfortunately, but he's, he's an incredible person, um, has this quote, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product or your thing, you've launched too late. And that's just true. Like, it forces you to execute and like, just put things out there. So I, I totally agree with her. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good segue, actually. Uh, and it's question here, which is, Okay, what if you put something out too early and then someone forks it and tries to compete aggressively with you? So, I mean, you know, I guess that's a natural fear for people to have. How do you think about it? I don't think this has ever happened in the in the history of any software company. <laughs> I, I mean, can you name an example, Anna? I mean, like this happens. I mean, this this does happen in in like the blockchain space, right? Um, where because there's value accrual, right? 
um, like short-term value, speculative value accrual. So it does happen there, but I, I don't think I've seen. Yeah. So like if something catches on, everyone starts, you know, deploying yeah. capital to some new protocol, some new. Uniswap. You know, yeah, sure. Uniswap or, you know, friend tech or anything like this. And then typically what ends up happening is someone else wants to capture that value, deploys, uh, you know, a clone or an alternative product as fast as possible because the, the, you know, the, the fundamental code base is open source. But I think we've seen that in the longer tail that typically it, well, it comes down to execution, right? So like it, typically longer tail, the one, the, the kind of the company that initiated this concept has probably thought about it longer, harder than the person who's just like, yeah, cop, you know, control V, control, control C, control V. And, <laughs> and like, I think people can see through that pretty quick and, um, it ends up being like a two, three day flash in the pan. So if that happens to you, I'd say yeah. just like wait three days and you'll probably feel better and realize that it was not like a crisis. I think if the opposite is true, if your fork is actually better than your core product, you need to have a really honest conversation with your team and like in front of the mirror and be like, how did this happen? Because technically this can happen anytime with any non-open source product. Like, I mean, this is virtually happening with open source alternatives or, or, or new products that are just so much superior to their closed source alternatives. Like it's writing code is, is nowadays not so hard. Like it's a, we're not, I mean, we still pay tons and tons of dollars to, uh, to engineers, right? But it, at the end of the day, writing code is a commodity, like finding product market fit, having a good brand, having a good community, having a good ecosystem those are your main modes and those stay the same mode. Like um, I can probably, you know, uh, um, fork a documento tomorrow, but like, I don't have the team. I don't have the resources. I don't have the energy. I don't have a brand. Like are you going to rename it? Um, that's why also we, we spend a lot of time and, and money into having a really good brand with Cal.com because nobody's going to sign up for easy scheduling dot Like it's just not going to happen. And so like, take my code, like, I don't care. like compete with me. That only makes our product better because if you figure out something that's amazing, I'm just going to take it back. Like if you fork, I fork. Like, I mean, that's how evolution, like that's how code. I mean, that's how every engineer works. Like you see I mean, some having said that, great if your, if your company name was easy scheduling that biz, I still, I still would have invested in you, man. Uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Still use it. I want to maybe move on to, cause I know there's a bunch of questions around here that people are asking around basically money. Right. So um, I think I'll bring in this one so fundraising. And I would even add to this, like, you know, I have some people asking about there's, there's all these pools of theoretical money that exists for open source projects, you know, grants and and donations and, and things like that. So if you're, you know, really early stage and, and there's, you know, some other questions in here about what part of even like this business development process should be closed versus open, should you be fundraising more openly? Yeah. So talking, you know, if you're, if you're thinking, and I know you guys just, you know, launched your own kind of get round uh, like accelerator. So you obviously, you know, have some opinions about it, maybe working a little bit differently. How do you mm -hmm. think about getting money as like an early stage founder in open source? I'll, I'll take I'll take the founder's point of view, and then JJ can do the the VC point of view. I think that's a good idea. Um, and try to keep it short. I would highly recommend to not raise any major money if you don't have a strategy or at least a vision to build a big business. Um, the best startups, and also the least amount of anxiety for a founder is to have the incentives aligned with your team, including your investors, right? So if you go out there and say, it's going to be a billion dollar business, right? 
And then you turn around and you look in the mirror and be like, yeah, I'm actually fine. Just like, give me any money. Like, I just want to, you know, have some money to, you know, pay my rent. Um, you're going to have a really, really hard time because everyone else is going to believe in you. They think you're going to go public. You're going to build the next GitLab. You're going to build the next whatever Confluence or, or uh, um, Elastic uh, or HashiCorp. And it's just really, really hard because you're competing with those two visions, right? Um, so if you really, really want to raise funding, be well aware it's a pretty straightforward path. Like you need to be okay, A, giving up some part of your company, some pro- some part of your equity, but also you have um, like expectations that you need to match, right? And there's a lot of people on VC Twitter who are like, uh, you've got to be under pressure. No, the pressure comes from you. Like you need this from yourself. Like if any VC puts you into a box, like you did the mistake of raising in the first place. Like if you don't want to go that way, you should make that decision up front. And, and that's something I see a lot of times um, go sideways when people are just like, I need money. Let me go fundraise. Um, that is very tricky because a lot of projects are not VC fundable. Um, the good investors say no because they save you from all the anxiety that comes from having a shitty product and VC funding. Um, the bad investors will probably give you money and will be a pain in the ass because you'll never be able to return the fund, the money and the fund. And it's just a very, very long, sad journey. This happened to one of my previous companies that was able to raise some funding, but ultimately failed because the market was not too big and the product was not VC fundable. And it's it's um, it's very sad. So going back to that, only raise funding um, if you are clear that you you can execute or you you have at least something of substance that you want to take to to a big big uh, company. And the way you do it, that that's something JJ can can go over. I agree with everything Per just said. I would add a couple tiny things, which is like. Most founders, open source or not, this is just kind of like reality. They don't understand when you're raising venture capital, um, you have to build like a giant company. Like you, you, you have to have the ambition and the real like potential, possible potential. Like if you're building a, a Django framework that does linting or something, you know, like <laughs> most likely, even if you're a spectacular talent and your ambition is phenomenal, you're not going to create a company that can generate returns for that venture capital. And we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue. Yeah, like- and I, I think that there's kind of like a, 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 a problem in the last five or 10 years because there's so many new funds that have been created. I'm one of them, by the way. I like created OSS Capital in the last five years. So, you know, kind of be suspicious of me too. But, you know, I'm, I, I have an institutional kind of fund. There's a lot of funds that are like 10 to 10, 10 to 20 million or 10 to 50 million. And it's like some new investor has, you know, kind of like no thesis and no focus area. And they're kind of generalists. There's literally hundreds of these funds and maybe they don't care because they're just kind of spraying money. But if you're raising money and you raise money from like a top 50 fund, like one of the top 50 funds, you have to create a giant outcome. And I think what Per just said is very true. A lot of open source company founders early on, they're like, I have a thousand GitHub stars or I have 10,000 GitHub stars or something. I can go and raise my seed around now. The reality is you should really question, should you be raising money? Um, I think like seven times out of 10, you probably shouldn't be raising money because it doesn't matter how spectacularly talented you are or how big your ambition is. Your um, your project is most likely not going to be able to create a business that can generate you know, massive outcomes that uh, are a fit for the kind of capital you're, you're raising. If you're raising friends and family money, 
or you you explicitly believe you can create a business that can like generate maybe at most five to 10 million in revenue a year. And it's like a lifestyle business. Set those expectations. Be honest with yourself. But if you're raising venture capital where the expectation is, I'm going to raise a pre-seed or I'm going to do a get round and then I'm going to do a pre-seed or a seed. And then I need to do a series A and then, you know, maybe another round after that. And then we're going to go public. Like really question how many companies have gone public sustainably that have stayed in the public markets. A lot of public companies, they go public and then they die. Um, I was I was doing a board meeting yesterday in a WeWork. Most people don't realize this. WeWork is worth $90 million today in the public markets. Nine zero, nine zero. Just look, look at their stock. It's, it's pretty it's pretty crazy. I'm sure their assets and all of their you know real estate are worth more than that. So you probably couldn't, if you had like 90 million in the bank, you probably couldn't like buy WeWork or could you? I don't know. But like, it used to be worth tens of billions of dollars. So you really have to kind of think like, is it possible to create a huge, long-term, sustainable, enormous company as opposed to just taking advantage of you know, the fact that so many people exist now that are just investing in a lot of you know, kind of cookie-cutter ideas and things that look like they can be venture-fundable. Um, I think, yeah, I think, I think the other exception is if you plan to do like an accelerator or like you raise really small amounts of money, angels, friends, um, they believe in you personally, but that also means that if you notice your project doesn't go anywhere, you'd need to make a hard pivot and do something else. Like if you join, if you join YC or any other tech stars, any other accelerator, they invest mostly in you because they know it's too early for them to, to make a guess whether your stuff is going to go crazy or not. So those are the exceptions, especially when you have a co-founder that you really, really like working with. That's like a power couple, you know, um, like two amazing people are way better than one amazing person. And so um, those are kind of like the exceptions where you could be looking at raising funding. But um, just because, you know, your open source project has some initial interest doesn't mean that that's going to be, you know, the billion dollar business um, that will uh, like qualify you raising funding vc funding right vc funding we're talking vc funding not small angel checks so um yeah but maybe i can jump in on this as well like (laughs) i think my recommendation i'm going to just be like super pragmatic about it is like build your vehicle and if your vehicle ends up being a car you could probably put the gas in yourself if it ends up being a rocket ship you're probably going to need a lot more gas than you can afford and and you know that's just like let the demand you know, for your capital needs dictate and let the vehicle dictate what you need to raise. And if you, if you can finance it yourself from your profit, from some sort of business that you're operating, fantastic, fill the car yourself. And uh, that way, you know, you don't have a lean on it, but if you built a rocket ship, when you, you know, when it came down to the vehicle and you can't afford to fill it, then you, but you believe that it's going to reach Saturn, then, you know, definitely get help and there's gonna be a lot of people lining up if it is this you know starship people are gonna be lining up to, to pay for your gas fee vcs loves rocket ships yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> that is the analogy that vcs use is like yeah, venture capital great. is rocket fuel yeah, everything else great. is a different kind of fuel and but, some, but sometimes you just build a car right sometimes, sometimes it's just a car build. and that's cool yeah. like cars are cool too right like it doesn't have to be not everything has to be a starship well, thanks. Thank you guys so much for, for joining. It's super, super valuable. And thanks for having us, Joe. Um, yeah, definitely yeah. You know, keep keep watching these guys. Thanks. Bye, everyone. All right.